Good day, everyone, and welcome to another B-Sides, the podcast where we talk about whatever doesn't fit into the sermon. And this one is following our single message, overviewing the entire book of Ephesians, Blessed Beyond Belief. I thoroughly enjoyed teaching the entire book of Ephesians in one message. I'd never done that before, even though it's my favorite book. Uh, but I was just, oh, I just really enjoyed it. And I'm really excited to now do this episode, uh, just walking through the book with you verse by verse. Um, it's gonna be long. I'm pretty, I have no idea how long it's gonna be, but it's gonna take us a while. And, um, all I have here literally is just my Bible. Um, I'm going to, I actually do have one book. I'm, I'm going to read one quote at the beginning. Uh, that's it. I'm just gonna, you know, we're just gonna walk through it. I just, I really love this book and just kinda just, just I don't know, I just, I just feel like it, it was, it'd be a shame if the church didn't get to, uh, just go through this book verse by verse and only got Sunday's message. So, we're gonna do that in a moment. Um, but first, I'm going to preview the book of Judges for this upcoming Sunday and for our next uh, Bible book in our study. Um, because chances are some of you <laughs> will, well, I don't know how many of you are going to want to get to the end. I, I don't know how long this will be. So we'll start with a short preview and then we'll get into the book of Ephesians. And uh, we won't do a summary of Sunday's message, partly because we're just going through Ephesians anyways. So uh, let's begin with a preview of the book of Judges. So we're going to do the book of Judges in four teachings. Uh, this upcoming Sunday, I will do chapters one through five, in which we will see two judges. We'll uh, see actually three, Othniel, uh, Ehud, and uh, uh, Deborah. And um, there's going to be 12 judges total in the book. So I'll, I'll be covering the first three in the first five chapters. And then um, we'll be covering chapters six through nine, Gideon. <laughs> And then Samson, the third message will be chapters 13 through 16. Pastor Mike will be uh, teaching us about Samson. And then we'll close the book with the last chapters, 17 through 21. There's a lot of chaos and darkness at the end of Judges. And Pastor Mike will also be teaching those two. So I'll be doing the first two. Pastor Mike will be doing the last two. Uh, so we'll be doing Judges in four weeks. Now, like I said, there are 12 Judges in the book of Judges. Ironically, 12, 12 tribes. It seems like it's very intentional. Um, six of them are considered minor judges, and all that means is that they don't get a lot of attention. And then six are major judges, which means they get a lot of things said about them. So the six major ones are Othniel, Ehud, Deborah, Gideon, Jephthah, and Samson. So we'll be covering them. Um, judges. What are judges? Well, in a sense, they're, uh, they're anti-heroes. Now, judges, these aren't like curly-haired people with a gavel and say guilty or innocent. That's not the right idea to judge. Judge in the Hebrew can mean decide, like a judge does, but it, it does mean to rule. These are more like little kings that are not official. And uh, one, actually one commentator whom I, I'm really a fan of his work, um, he calls them warlords. That's how he prefers to see them. So these are like little warlords whom God raises to deliver Israel. And what you're going to see 
Uh, and I call them anti-heroes because on one hand they're, they're heroic, they deliver Israel, but what we're going to see is that they all have flaws. And actually they get progressively worse as the book goes on. So anti-heroes, um, pointing to what a real hero should look like. And so, of course, all these are ultimately pointing us to the fact that Israel needs a king who's faithful to God. And we got that king. His name is Jesus. Um, so while you read through the book of Judges, one thing I want you to keep in mind as you read is something that's been coming to me and it's shown up in books afterwards. So it's only confirmed it. And that's the idea of God using the foolish things to confound the wise. The judges are fools and they just confound the wisdom of the world by God somehow using them. So you're familiar with this verse in first Corinthians chapter one. It says this for consider your calling brothers Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. That is Judges right there. So read with that in mind. And then, so to read two quotes to you, to show you that others are picking up on the same thing, uh, listen to this from one book. The warlords use whatever instruments they have in hand. Ehud fashions his dagger for the occasion. Shamgar uses an ox goad. Jael, a tent peg, Gideon, trumpets, jars, and torches, a woman of Thesbes, a millstone, and Samson, a donkey's jawbone. Like, these are just not great weapons or anything. These are just like, they're using what they have at hand. And then this one I like even more. It says, each of the judge's victories is accomplished in the power of the spirit. And in many, there are clear theological overtones that stress power and weakness. The knife kills obese Eglon. The knife that kills obese Eglon comes from the left hand of Ehud and is associated with the word of God. The female victory of Deborah over the Canaanites, which culminates in the smashing of the enemy's skull, also by a woman, emphasizes divine aid. Gideon's lack of promise as a military leader qualifies him to be the leader of an even less promising army, which is thereby qualified to fight for Yahweh and win a stunning victory over the Midianites. His sword is the Lord's. Jepheth, the son of a whore, triumphs because of prayer, as does the final judge, Samson, whose dramatic death accomplishes a great victory over the Philistines. Samson defeats more Philistines in his death than he did in his life when he's blind. Jephthah is run out of town because he's the son of a whore. He's a renegade hanging out with, with homeless people and criminals and crooks, and he's used to deliver God's people. Uh, two women are deliverers in the story, and back in this time, that was a shame to the men, that the women were the ones getting credit and victory. And it also shows God's heart that he he sees them as equal. He wants to use them both. Um, and then... Uh, uh, 
Ehud is left-handed, which was not considered normal in those days, but God uses his left-handedness to have a victory. It's just, and then Gideon, the biggest coward of them all, who is hiding while he's doing his threshing of his grain. He's hiding from the enemy. I mean, this guy was a coward, and yet God uses him and a very pathetic army with no weapons to defeat the Midianites. This book is just screaming out that passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And so, um, one more thought. Uh, as you read Judges, you're going to want to take a shower a lot. Because you're just going to feel filthy. It's full of sin and chaos and just failure. Moral failure. Which also reminds me of Corinthians. So maybe it would be interesting to read the letters of First and Second Corinthians as we read the book of Judges. Because we look at Israel and say, oh, how pathetic they were. But, well, you know, we had 12 apostles like they had 12 um, uh, judges. And we didn't fare much better and still don't. And you read the letters to the Corinthians, you're like, yeah, it's kind of like the judges of the New Testament, isn't it? So, um, yeah, it, it would be interesting to kind of parallel those as we go. So, um, all right, happy reading. And now on to our long verse by verse through the book of Ephesians. <laughs> All right, so I'm going to begin with a quote from Eugene Peterson, which I think just beautifully summarizes a lot of the theme of this book. So I quote, What we know about God and what we do for God have a way of getting broken apart in our lives. The moment the organic unity of belief and behavior is damaged in any way, we are incapable of living out the full humanity for which we were created. Paul's letter to the Ephesians joins together what has been torn apart in our sin-wrecked world. I'm going to read that one more time. Paul's letter to the Ephesians joins together what has been torn apart in our sin-wrecked world. He begins with an exuberant exploration of what Christians believe about God, and then, like a surgeon skillfully setting a compound fracture, sets this belief in God into our behavior before God so that the bones, belief and behavior, knit together and heal. Once our attention is called to it, we notice these fractures all over the place. There is hardly a bone in our bodies that has escaped injury, hardly a relationship in city or job, school or church, family or country that isn't out of joint or limping in pain. There is much work to be done. And so, Paul goes to work. He ranges widely from heaven to earth and back again, showing us Jesus, the Messiah, is eternally and tirelessly bringing everything and everyone together. He also shows us that in addition to having this work done in and for us, we are participants in this most urgent work. Now that we know what is going on, that the energy of reconciliation is the dynamo at the heart of the universe, it is imperative that we join in vigorously and perseveringly convinced that every detail in our lives contributes, or not, to what Paul describes as God's plan worked out by Christ 
a long-range plan in which everything would be brought together and summed up in him. Everything in deepest heaven, everything on planet Earth. End quote. So that is how we will launch in. Chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. A note about letter writing. Paul often did not write his letters with his own hand. And this was common in the day. There was someone who was called an amanuensis. And, and an, that's mouthful. <laughs> an amanuensis was somebody who wrote down on behalf of an author. Now, this isn't quite the same thing as a scribe, because an amanuensis would often be a partner with the author. And Paul, of course, had many partners. He had Timothy, for example, as a partner, and he had Silas as a partner. He had people whom he worked very closely with and knew his thinking and knew his teaching and uh, were often extensions of himself. So there's this amanuensis. So, so there's three parts to a letter writing. You have the author, the idea, the thing he wants to communicate. You have the amanuensis who does the actual writing, and then you have the messenger. Third, the messenger is the one who takes this letter crafted from the mind of the author and written physically with the pen of the amanuensis and the messenger who's part of the writing process and knows the contents very well will then go and physically and personally deliver the letter to the audience that it's addressed to. And there, when the messenger arrives to the people that are addressed, let's say one of Paul's churches, he arrives at the church, the people gather together to hear this messenger who was there in the writing process read the letter aloud to people. And they would hear it. And the powerful thing is that they would hear it from someone who is part of the writing process. Because as you and I know, sometimes you can't catch tonality in written words. You're not always certain if this person is being sarcastic here or serious there. But the messenger would know precisely what Paul was trying to say. And so he would be able to read it with Paul's actual authority and his tone. And furthermore, the messenger, being part of the room in the discussion of what was written, could also elaborate on certain parts of the letter as he read it to the audience. Uh, so if the audience had any questions at any point of the reading, he would be able to answer their questions and uh, give them more information. Then the letter would be left with the people and the messenger would return back to Paul and he would be able to report how they received his message. So yeah, there's a very complicated um, thing that went on here. So Paul, of course, is the author always. But now what happens is some of his letters read so differently. And, and sometimes you have these scholars that say, well, Paul couldn't possibly have written all these letters. But what we are not taking into account is that sometimes an amanuensis would literally be dictated to and write down word for word what the author wanted. Other times, the author would tell the amanuensis, I want this to be said, please craft it 
in a better way. And actually, this is believed to be the case of Peter's letters. Um, Peter was likely not educated enough in the way of letter writing and to communicate something. And so many people believe that Mark became his disciple, the same Mark who's responsible for the Gospel of Mark. It's believed that Peter's letters and the Gospel of Mark were actually Peter's writing through the um, the the communication style of Mark. So that Mark would have been Peter's amanuensis. And that that could have happened at times with Paul, which is why if you'll ever, if you ever read like some, um, hear some arguments or read some deeper uh, commentaries, some people, the the question will always go out, did Paul write this and so forth. Um, I tend to favor the fact that Paul wrote more than uh, a lot of liberal scholars give him credit for, uh, because maybe sometimes he entrusts his disciples to have a say in things. And so all that to say, um, There is a complicated process here, and that Paul is dictating this letter, and somebody is writing it down. Now, um, are they writing every word that Paul wants, or is there a little bit of um, creative, that's not the right word, not creative, but um, structural liberty? Uh, We don't know for sure, but we we do know that letter writing, especially for Paul, was a team process. And so, um, actually, at the end of Ephesians, we, we see who the messenger of this letter is, the one who went to go read it. Uh, if you look at 6 verse 21, you see this. So that you also may know how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. So Tychicus appears to be the messenger that Paul's going to send. Now the amanuensis himself, um, we do not know. It doesn't seem to be named. All right. So that's um, our note on letter writing. Another note here uh, is that when a letter was written to a specific audience, it never stayed with that audience. The churches began to really treasure these letters and help that they'd get from apostles. And so they would begin to circulate and pass them around. So what would originate toward a certain people with a certain context eventually was shared so that the churches could kind of share the things that they're learning. Because remember, there's no New Testament when the church is first birthed. All they have is the Old Testament and the stories of Jesus. So even the Gospels um, weren't written yet. So they were really cherishing these letters and passing them around. So the letter of Ephesians was undoubtedly passed around. Now, some of the manuscripts, the old Greek manuscripts, some of them don't say the word Ephesus in verse 1, to the saints who are in Ephesus. It just says, to the saints. And so that has led some people to believe that the letter of Ephesians may not have been specifically addressed to the specific city of Ephesus, that it may, maybe it was directed in that area, but that it was meant from the beginning, it was meant to be circulated widely. In other words, what we're looking at when it comes to Ephesians is a letter that is not addressing a specific request or specific issue. It's Paul elaborating on some of the greatness of the gospel and what God is doing in Christ. 
And so it's not like Corinthians where there are some specific problems and he's zeroing in what he's saying to those problems. This is really one of the more open-ended letters we have in the Bible where we just see Paul sharing his beliefs about who God is. And that's what makes Ephesians such a cherished letter. Now, are there problems that this letter addresses? Yes. But they're considered more of a universal problem that much of the churches were all experiencing. And, as we shall see, I would dare say we still experience some of these challenges today. Okay, so that's how the letter begins. Now, verse 3. When we start verse 3, I'm just going to read it in one shot all the way through verse 14, so you can get the sense of this. These verses are 202 Greek words all in a single run-on sentence. It is undoubtedly the greatest sentence ever penned in the history of the world. I may be biased when I say that, but I would love to see somebody challenge that. First thing. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory." All right, first, a little bit about letter structure, and we're going to return to this in a second. Letters always began with a greeting. We covered that. This is Paul to you people, grace and peace. Next, letters would, in this era, would always go into thanksgiving toward the gods. Romans, of course, had gods, and they would thank their gods. Paul is thanking, in quite a long, elaborate sentence, he is thanking God and his work through Jesus Christ. 202 words verses 3 through 14, to say thanks. This is very much, very, 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 very much longer than most Thanksgivings would be. They're usually a single sentence in the secular letters. Paul obviously has a very different heart toward his God than the Romans did. He is overflowing with praise and thanksgiving. And not just waxing flattery toward his God. This is very specific and very personal. He is deeply moved by this God whom he worships. 
Um, you'll notice that three times we see this phrase, to the praise of his glory. And so again, that's part of the thanksgiving, and that God's done this amazing stuff, and it's all to the praise of his glory. You'll also notice that um, the word blessed is used. That's, that's on one hand to say, blessed be God, we're giving him praise and thanks and glory. But on the other hand, the word blessed is so important, because the first time that word shows up is in Genesis 1. God blesses his creation. Blessing in the Bible is the condition of the way God meant things to be. United, put together. But sin has fractured things into curse, into hurt, into pain, into division. And so blessing is being restored through the God who's moving in and through Jesus and what he's done. Blessing is being restored. Notice how in Matthew's gospel, we have Jesus's Sermon on the Mount, and he opens up with blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed. And he says that nine times, blessed, blessed, blessed. See, Jesus is the one bringing blessing back to earth. He's the one who's reuniting our sin-fractured world. And so you notice that um, in verses 9 and 10, when it revealed to us the mystery of God's plan, which he set forth in Christ, he then said, this is what the plan is. And this is this is the revelation that's blowing Paul's mind, he's calling us to participate in, is that um, the, his plan was that for at the fullness of time, he would unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. Everything is coming back together. People whom sin has divided, he's uniting. Heaven and earth whom sin has divided are being reunited, which is another way of saying God and humans. In Jesus, they're being reunited. This is what blessing looks like. A world working in harmony, a world moving in rhythm and dance to God's music. You also notice that there were three specific blessings mentioned. Of course, you could probably um, outline this into a few more, but there, there was this phrase that in him you had this. So point those out. Um, the first one was in verse four. We were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. So this, this goes back to two stories. First, creation before the foundation of the world. Well, he was already working through Christ, um, but also Abraham. Abraham was chosen. We're chosen. And so um, we get to participate in those blessings. Um, now, it talks, of course, about this word predestined to adoption. And then later we'll say we have obtained an inheritance. Have you been predestined? Um, some people want to say that God has, before the foundation of the world, already chosen who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. And, of course, um, they this is called Calvinism. And Calvinists... Before anyone bashes a Calvinist, we need to understand that Calvinists are some of the most biblically centered Christians out there today. And they are great scholars and students of scripture. Most of the best commentaries and books we have available, some of the most famous preachers in history and even in the present are Calvinists. Um, that doesn't mean that you need to become a Calvinist, and nor does that mean that you have to believe everything that they believe. Um, a Calvinist believes that God has predestined, meaning he's already determined the destination of every individual on earth. 
And he's determined these are going to hell, these are going to heaven. So you were saved because God predestined that you would be saved. And of course, this verse looks like a great um, support for that idea. Now, while I don't ever claim to think that I know the answer, I don't think, though, that that's Paul's intention here. And so, um, without saying that Calvinists are right or wrong, I just want to say that Paul's saying something different. The predestination is not who will get salvation. The predestination is who will carry the salvation to the world. Think about, for example, the story that Paul's clearly drawing on, Abraham. Abraham was elected. What was Abraham elected for? Was Abraham elected to go to heaven? Or was Abraham elected to be the one who would carry God's Edenic blessing to a broken and fallen world? You see what I'm saying? We would all agree on the latter. That Abraham was elected to carry God's salvation. Now, does that mean he goes to heaven? Yeah, probably. But it also gives room for Abraham to have the free will to join with God in this or not. And so I would suggest that Paul's intent is to say that we, like Abraham, were destined. The church was destined to be the bearers of blessing to a cursed and fractured world. That through us, he intends, first through Jesus and now through us, his church, his body, he intends to bring unity and harmony and blessing back to the earth. So if um, those kinds of questions about predestination have ever confused you uh, or concerned you, I hope maybe that would give some clarity. Now, second in him is in verse 7. So in him we were chosen. Number seven, in him, second, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. So our sins are forgiven through the blood of Jesus. We were bought, redeemed. That means we bought back. And often that word was used in the slave market. And of course, with the blood and being bought out of slavery comes the image of the Exodus. Um, so we, like Israel, have been released from slavery. And it was from the blood of a lamb, Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that's where Paul makes clear God's, his plan to bring all things together. So um, we were redeemed, not only forgiven our sins, but included on God's great master plan that at the end of time, all things will be united. Guys, we are part of uniting God's world of taking the broken bits and pieces and putting them back together into this picture that's called blessing. This is good stuff. And we get too concerned with ourselves, don't we? So this is also telling us what we were saved for. We were saved from our sin in order to bring the world out of its sin or out of its brokenness and into blessing. This is so good. Now, the third in him, the third blessing is in verse 11. In him, we have obtained an inheritance. And so once again, Paul's continuing that Jewish story of Abraham and the election and of Passover and their liberation to they have an inheritance. They got the promised land. Um, we get an inheritance and it's Christ. Now, this inheritance, I would argue, you're welcome to disagree with me. But I would argue that our inheritance is Christ, and because it's Christ, 
we are co-heirs with Christ, which we're told, I think that's in Romans, we're co-heirs with Christ, which means we inherit what he inherits. And he, as the son of God, is king of the world. He inherits the world. The world is his. And so, by virtue, the world will be ours. Romans, uh, excuse me, Revelation says that we will rule and reign with Christ. And it's the uh, beatitude in Matthew 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And in Revelation chapter 5, there's a scroll that no one can open, so John weeps, but then the lion of Judah um, comes, and then he sees, and it's not a lion, but it's a slaughtered lamb. It's Jesus, the king who took the throne by giving his life. He is worthy to take the scroll, and he opens the scroll. And many people point out that the scroll is it's described exactly the way a will of inheritance would have been created in the Roman world. That if a, if a rich father were to die, he would pass on all of his inheritance to his son, seal it seven times in a scroll, so there's seven witnesses, and then when he dies, it would be opened up. So that perhaps, the image there in Revelation 5 is that Jesus is inheriting from the Father the earth. And then, of course, we see all this chaos on earth, and then Jesus comes to earth and takes over. And we rule and reign with him. Further, I would like you to um, pay attention to Psalm chapter 2, which I consider one of the essential psalms of the entire Psalter, because it unlocks so much of what the Bible's about. And by the way, Psalm 2 is the most cited psalm in the New Testament. So if you want to pick up what the New Testament apostles were putting down, you're going to want to understand Psalm 2. And so here's how Psalm 2 sounds. And just to remind you, we're thinking about our inheritance. So what Psalm 2 is going to show us is Christ's inheritance. So keep that in mind. Psalm chapter 2, verse 1. Let me give you the picture real quick so you can kind of, because some of you may not be reading in your Bibles, you might just be listening. So help me help you visualize this. We're going to see the nations who are in rebellion against God. Then the scene's going to shift to God, who's laughing at the rebellion. Then God's going to speak and say, I have already appointed my king. And then there's going to be this encouragement for us to respond to this revelation. Okay, so here it goes. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Now that word anointed in Hebrew is Mashiach, which we translate as Messiah, or in the New Testament, the Greek version is Christ. Yeah, you see where this is going? They're, the nations are rebelling against God and Christ. So verse 4 continues. Now this is scene 2, God's reaction to the rebellion. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. He's not worried. He's laughing. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Zion is a poetic word for Jerusalem. I have set my king in Jerusalem. Who's his king? Right, the anointed one, the Mashiach, the Messiah, the Christ. 
I have set him on my holy hill. And now the psalmist says, I will tell of the decree. Yahweh said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. That, by the way, is quoted when Jesus is baptized and he comes up out of the waters. Yeah, the gospel writers get what's happening. He is being declared as the son of God at that baptism. You are, in other words, the king he has appointed to rule over the rebellious nations. Now, keep listening. So the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. That graphic imagery of um, dashing them is also uh, cited in Revelation when Jesus comes back to earth. So, what what's this inheritance for this king? Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. Yeah, so when Jesus um, dies and rises from the dead and then ascends to the throne, what is he inheriting? He is inheriting the creation. And so what are we co-inheriting with him? The creation. And he's entrusting us to be its rulers, just like Adam and Eve were supposed to do, but they originally messed up. Um, to finish the psalm, it then gives us an application. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed, there's that word, blessed are all who take refuge in him. So, Paul says in Ephesians 1.11, in him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Um, and then he goes on verse 13 to all say in him, you were given the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit becomes a down payment of that inheritance to come. How do we know it's going to be complete one day? Well, if the Holy Spirit's working in your life, you're on the right track. So that is the first sentence of Ephesians. So now we come to, in verse 15, we come to the third part of letter writing. So it begins with a greeting, it then goes to thanksgiving to God, and then the third part always includes a narration. A narration is where you include kind of what's happened in your life. It's the story of what has brought this letter about. Um, so obviously in the secular letters, um, which by the way, even the shortest New Testament letter is longer than the average secular letter. So already the biblical letter writers like Paul are way outdoing the normal letters of that day and age. That's how important this content is to them. Um, so, so the, the typical like Thanksgiving and greeting, like a sentence each, the narration often just a sentence or two. Um, this narration, this story of events leading up to the main part of the letter is perhaps the longest in the New Testament. It's long. It's going to start in chapter 1, verse 15, with a prayer. And it's going to end in chapter 3, verse 21, with amen, the end of a prayer. Now, on the surface, it's going to look like Paul starts the section with a prayer, and then ends it with another prayer. But I'm going to suggest 
that the rest of chapter 1, all of chapter 2, and chapter 3 are Paul giving the narration of events up to this letter in the form of prayer. Because the second prayer at the end, he picks up as if he never ended the first prayer. And the first prayer, by the way, as you're about to hear, doesn't ever seem to properly conclude as a prayer. So, you guys are about to go into perhaps a very lengthy and very informative prayer. And I wonder what would happen if we made this a habit to pray on a regular basis. So, you ready to go into this lengthy prayer? Chapter 1, verse 15. So, for this reason... Because of everything God has done in Christ, because of the blessings we have in him, because of our redemption, the fact that he's called us into a mission to unify all things, because we have this inheritance, because of that great lofty 202-word sentence of thanksgiving Paul utters, um, it's for that reason that he launches into this prayer. So, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints— I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know. Pause. So here's where he gets into the prayer. So I'm praying that you guys would understand, because these are blessings beyond belief. I want the eyes of your heart enlightened. I want you to have a spirit of revelation, which is just seeing the unveiling of the majesty of God and what he's doing in and through Christ. I want you to have wisdom so that you grasp this in a way that you can live it, that it will change your life. This wouldn't just be theology and head knowledge, but that this would become practical living. He's praying this. And now, as there were three blessings, he's now going to pray that there are three things that we can see, that the eyes of our hearts we open to know and to see. So I'm going to pick this back up. So I'm praying that you would see this, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know, one, what is the hope to which you have been called? Two, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And three, and most powerfully... What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? What kind of power? Listen to how he describes it. According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Paul says the immeasurable power of God is at work in us now who believe the power that raised Christ from the dead. You could meditate on that for the rest of your life, but there's more when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. The power that not only raised Jesus from the dead, but enthroned him on God's throne. Is there a greater power in the entire universe than God's throne? The power that enthroned Jesus there is at work in us who believe. How in the world do we have problems? (laughs) These are blessings beyond belief. 
And Paul, you can see why he's desperately praying that the eyes of our hearts be open, that we would have the spirit of wisdom and revelation to know and see this. Now, how high is this ascension? How high is the throne to which Jesus has been seated? Verse 21. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. In other words, there will never be a throne and there never has been a throne higher than the throne, the power of God that's at work in us raised Jesus to. Wow. So then you and I come into play, verse 22. And he put all things under his, Jesus's feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Don't you see the role we're playing here? Even now, before we have actual possession of creation, he is already using his kingly authority with us. And this is why it is so important that we live well. It's not just that we're decent chaps. It's not so that people want to be with Jesus because, oh, they're such nice people. It's because we're part of a kingdom here and we're given power to rule it. And if we can't even live it, you obviously aren't in any authority to be ruling with Jesus. Uh, this is not to make you feel bad for sinning. We're we're in the age right now of sin, and it's going to happen. But this is why it's very important that we work toward our own growth. That, that'll come up in a minute. I'm getting ahead of myself. So that concludes chapter 1, and seemingly the prayer. But now chapter 2, verse 1, it doesn't seem like Paul actually ever ends it. Chapter 2, verse 1 just starts with and. So he's still going. It, so it doesn't seem like the prayer has ended, but you're going to hear him get into much like he's kind of already done with the whole, and that you would know the power of him who's at work in you. And then he kind of explains like how it raised Jesus and it seated him at the throne. It's above all principalities and powers and all the invisible forces and every throne that's ever been named. Um, he's going to keep teaching like that. And so I think we're going to, what we're going to see in chapter two is he's going to continue to expound on that power at work in us right now because it raised Christ from the dead. So what chapter two is going to say is that this power raised us from the dead as well. It's going to show us how his power is working in us at the moment so that what Christ has done, we are following in his footsteps through the same power of God. So Christ was raised from the dead. We're going to be raised in chapter two. And if you're a Christian, you have been. Um, and then as Christ was seated, chapter two is also going to show us how we are seated. Okay. And then it's going to say, if we have this power, this is how you're to use it in the world to be part of God's program of uniting all things into his original blessing. So yeah, chapter two is a lot. So let's go into it. Two verse one. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were dead. 
meaning we were separated from God and his purposes. We were part of the divided, cursed world that has been fractured by sin. We were scattered in a million pieces. We were those broken bones, that rotting graveyard of stinking flesh. And it says we were following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. Yeah, there was a certain power, not as high as the power of God, but it was manipulating us to do, for lack of a better analogy, uh, basically our own NASCAR race of pleasure. Yeah, not to pick on NASCAR, but they make a lot of left turns and just keep going around the same circuit over and over. And we were there making one turn after another as our passions of our flesh and our mind told us to do, which were influenced by the evil powers. And you could say Satan. It doesn't say Satan here, but it seems to be alluding to him. Yeah, we were in this rat race, almost like Israel wandering in the wilderness 40 years in a circle that went nowhere. We were there. We were as good as dead. We were going nowhere. Now the power that resurrected us, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, as you just heard, he made us alive together with Christ. Resurrection! We have been raised. You have been spiritually resurrected before the physical resurrection at the return of Jesus when he comes back. So in the future, 1 Corinthians 15 makes abundantly clear, in the future we will have physical bodies when Christ returns. Bodies that are meant to live age after age after age that won't wear out, that will be fueled by the spirit and not just by biology. Okay? We will have physical real bodies. That will be a resurrection. But before then, my soul, or maybe perhaps more properly, the spirit within has been resurrected. It was brought to life. So that now I'm not dead to God. I'm alive in God. And I can commune with God. And I can know God. And I can understand what he's up to in the world. And I can partner with him. I've been raised from the dead. The spirit is alive. So the way I see it, humans are material beings and immaterial beings. Body and soul. Meaning we've got um, hair color. We're a certain height. And we have biological functions and desires and needs like air, water, food, right? Sleep. Uh, we also are immaterial beings with a soul. We have uh, passions. We have personality. We have fears. We have emotions. We have dreams. Now, when there's nothing to guide these, we have the flesh leading it. Now, that's Paul's word. I like to think that an American word ego is very much the same idea of Paul's word flesh. That there's this ego driving our body and our soul, right? The ego is telling the soul what to dream. The ego is driving the emotions. The ego is driving the body. And where it craves things naturally, the ego is never satisfied. So it will overindulge on things. It will overuse the body. It will try to cause the soul to want to be exalted above all things. Because the soul never feels worthy with the ego ruling. The, the ego is a horrible tyrant. Um, that under sin is telling us we're never enough. So we keep doing too much, which causes us to sin. 
But then when we are raised with Christ, we come to life. We were dead. The spirit was dead, but now the spirit's alive. That's why the Bible says we are given the Holy Spirit. The spirit comes to life within us and it slays the ego or it puts it to better use more properly. It gives us a holy and pure ambition. And so then the spirit is driving the soul. The spirit is driving the body and it's telling us how to live and it's giving us the power to live differently. So that now the body's brought under subjection of the spirit. And the soul and its dreams and its emotions and its desires is brought under the control of the spirit. Our material selves and our immaterial selves, the Holy Spirit is bringing all of this into what? Unity. See, the ego can divide us and drive these things apart so that I may crave and desire one thing in my mind, but then my body's doing another. And Paul said in Romans 7, you have that whole thing going on because there's division. But the spirit can bring us into complete human beings, three dimensional beings. We are not just bodies with biological appetites, nor are we just souls that think and ponder things and make meaning out of things and have emotions and feelings. We are those things together under the meaning and power of God's spirit so that we're very human, we're very eternal, and we have a bit of the divine in us made in the image of God, sons and daughters of the King. We were raised with him. So let me go back to verse four, because I remember that the next step raised with him now seated, right? So here we go. Verse four again, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace. You've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. There you go. That's your royal status. And now my insecure ego does not have to try to fight everybody to be the best, try to grab every pleasure I can so that I can make my life feel meaningful. The spirit now tells me where I've been seated, and I can live in the contentment of being a son of the king. And he did this, verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So grace has done this. And grace is the gift that the king on the throne is giving to his people to empower them. He is raising us and seating us. That's the grace. And so it's not works. I can't raise myself and I cannot ascend the throne on my own. It's too steep and I'm too weak. That is not a place I in my own strength have any business being. But grace has raised me and seated me. And it's through faith. So faith is that part where I'm receiving and I'm trusting. And now faith is also the part, though, where it says things like, you know, when God says, you shall stop lying, faith trusts that. Faith recognizes that, you know what, lying is not the way you rule in God's kingdom. If I'm a son of the king or a daughter of the king, I cannot lie. See, lying will continue to make me weak. 
But by learning to tell the truth, and sometimes that's hard, I'm strengthening the condition of my soul. I'm strengthening who I am to be a true and genuine leader, a ruler with Christ. And so that's why we're not saved by our works. Grace is what's saving us. But we are tempered and trained to become rulers with Christ through works. That's why verse 10 says, we are his workmanship, creating Christ Jesus for good works. That we should be prepared, prepared that God is prepared beforehand that we should work, walk in them. So there is a plan here that there are things that we ought to be striving for and trying to do. But remember, it's not to gain a new status in Christ. Only grace can resurrect you and seat you with him. Only grace has done that. But we can learn how to reign. That's why there are morals, ethics, and character in Christianity. These are the training grounds for us to learn how to rule and reign with Christ. And I don't know how else to say it. If we are not walking in the works of God, I don't know how you are an adequate prince or princess who's going to rule and reign with him. I mean, I'm not saying you're going to go to hell, but I don't know how you're going to have an effective rulership with him. And so maybe, you know, there will be those that have great chances to rule and those that don't have much. Um, and, and of course, I'm just conjecturing a bit, a bit. Jesus does talk about in his parable, the talents, um, those who get more cities than others. Uh, how literal is he being there? It's a good question. But it does seem like you want to walk in God's way because it will create you into the kind of person he can entrust with much for the next age to come. And believe you, me, you want to be part of that. I, I sure do. Uh, so that's the power of God to raise us up and seat us with him. So there's this um, vertical power. He's united us with him. God and humans united now. Now there's going to be this horizontal. Because of that power, it's united us vertically with God. Now the way we walk this out is horizontally. He's going to unite us with other people. Because remember, part of being a ruler with Christ is that we're restoring blessing to his creation. So Paul's going to take this on, head on. It's tough. Um, Jews and Gentiles, they were divided. They were two different cultures. The Jews were raised believing in the one true God whom Jesus came, right? Like, man, we, we had it right all along. The Gentiles came from paganism. They were worshiping many gods in the Roman world. And yet now here they come together because of Christ. Two completely different cultures trying to come together as one body. Now what you're going to hear Paul say is not that the Jews are right or that the Gentiles are right. He's not going to tell the Gentiles to become more Jewish, nor is he going to tell the, the Jews to become more Roman He's going to say neither of them is perfect. What Christ is doing is something different. He's not choosing sides. He's creating a third option. A new humanity. So, verse 11, 211. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles, that's non-Jew, right? The Romans, that's also pro presumably you and me. It's me, presumably you. You Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision. 
Jews. Gentiles weren't circumcised, okay? Jews were circumcised. So the Jews, it, it was a nickname of disdain. They're the uncircumcised. So um, that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision. The circumcision is the Jews. Which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's the fracture of sin, right? That's the division and the disunity of the world in sin. Yeah, remember? At one time, we were part of that. But here Paul is being incredibly sarcastic. You, I really appreciate this part of Paul. Um, while the Gentiles can feel down, like, yeah, we, you know, we've been sinners all our lives, and the Jews, like, we've been righteous, and we've always had it right, and the, you know, Messiah came through our line and stuff. Paul is leveling the playing field here, and he takes a stab at the Jews, his own people, by the way. Um, he says, you were called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. And then he defines the circumcision as something made in the flesh by hands. Made in the flesh. So one, it's temporal. And by hands, too, means it's human and not divine. It's the work of humans, not God. It's a work. It's not grace. See what he's saying? And furthermore, his phrase, made in the flesh by hands, that was a Jewish phrase that they would slap onto idolatry. <laughs> for example, Psalm 115, verse 4. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. And Paul just says, yeah, I know you uncircumcised have been kind of outside of all this, called by the insiders, the circumcised, who have done this with the work of their hands. <laughs> so by applying this idolatry, this phrase that applies to idolatry to the Jewish circumcision, what Paul is saying is that the Jews have made too big of a deal of their circumcision. They have made themselves proud over something that was done with their hands to the point, And this is where he's being very subtly sarcastic here, that they have turned their circumcision into idolatry. Man, is Paul really knifing it here, isn't he? Oh, sorry for that pun, but <laughs> um, he's really, yeah, that's, th this is where, this, this is where Paul, you know, we always sometimes think of these saints as just like nice, but he's really letting them have it here. And it makes me wonder, what have we exalted that's simply the work of our hands that Paul would call idolatry, that we are using to separate ourselves from other people, from the outsider? Church, we need to be careful that we have not exalted our own whatever circumcision it is, like whatever it is, that we have not exalted that into an idol. Something that keeps outsiders outside. Which, by the way, circumcision was exactly that. The Jews had many laws, 613, that they kept, but four were the most important because these four made Gentiles outsiders because Gentiles didn't keep these four. And they were the Sabbath. Gentiles didn't keep the Sabbath. Jews did. This made them different. Worshipping of one God. Circumcision. 
and kosher food. The Jewish diet also kept them separate from the Gentiles. So those four, which by the way is an acronym that spells, that spells SOC, Sabbath, One God, Circumcision, Kosher Food, um, that was like the protective layer as they walked around the world to keep them distinct, to keep them inside and the others outside. And so circumcision's named here, but you know, it, it makes you begin to wonder, what are we making a big deal out of that is keeping outsiders outside. In verse 13, here's how all this changed. Here's how the outsiders, the Gentiles, came inside. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, there it is, Christ has done everything in this book, right? But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances. And that, of course, is alluding to sock, which we just talked about. Um, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. See? So he didn't say Gentiles need to be circumcised. Gentiles need to become more like the Jews. Nor did he say, Jews, you need to just give up on all of that and become like the Gentiles. He's simply saying these things that divide you have to be eliminated because Christ died to remove them. And it's now his blood between you that's bringing you together. If you're both following Christ, you both must meet in the middle. And it's not just so that you become this Jewish Gentile hybrid. So it's not one side or the other, nor is it a hybrid. He says a new humanity is replacing the two. And so that even in Galatians 3, he doesn't say it here, but in Galatians 3, he says there's neither Jew nor Gentile. God is not looking at race. He's looking at a new humanity who's going to be serving in his kingdom. Not the kingdom of our idea or our culture or our ways. He's the one on the throne and he's invited us to rule with him. So come together, people. That's what he's saying. And I wonder how we could apply this and how relevant this would be to our nation right now, which seems so divided on so many lines, even racially. Verse 17, and he came, Christ came, and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. See, even the Jews needed to be preached to. Not all of them believe. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then... You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So when we come together as one and we stop encouraging the sin-fractured world of division, but we come together and create that blessing, that Edenic original creation blessing that demonstrates the reign and authority of Christ on the throne, when that happens, we become the dwelling place, the temple of God, which in other words is simply saying, where there's unity, the presence of God is reigning. Where there's division, 
another king is reigning. This is very important stuff. If we are co-reigning with Christ, and if he's our king, and if he's ascended, and we are his people, there has to be a coming together. There has to be a unity. That's what Paul's saying. I know it sounds hard and crazy, and it seems like we're not doing a good job at this. That's why we need Ephesians. Now he continues. Chapter 3, verse 1. For this reason... So now he's going to launch back into prayer, right? It's almost like he broke off that prayer, went on this big rant about the power of God, the power that raised us and seated us with Christ, and now the power that must, because of that reign, must unite us together. Now he's going back into prayer mode. For this reason I, Paul, remember that's how we started the first prayer, chapter 1, verse 15, for this reason, because I heard, now, chapter 3, verse 1, for this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, And now the ESV puts a dash there because he breaks off his thought. Paul's about to go back into prayer and he pauses because he says, wait a minute, speaking of my being a prisoner uh, for Christ on behalf of the Gentiles, let me talk about that. So from verses 2 through 13, he's going to talk about why he's a prisoner for the Gentiles. And then in verse 14, listen to the same wording. For this reason, I, and then he goes in the prayer bow my knees before the Father. So yeah, see, this is where you see the um, verbal sense of the letter, Paul speaking, and there's breaking off thoughts, saying, no, wait, wait, let's say this. And the old man, Uwens is doing his best to keep up, you know. Um, Yeah, this is where we see the letter writing process. So let's see what Paul breaks off to say, and then we'll return to his prayer, and that will finally end this long narration section, and then he will finally get to the main point of his letter. (laughs) You're like, what? None of this was the main point yet? (laughs) I know. I know, it's a big time letter. So, in verse 2. Um, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, Gentiles, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and, apost- and prophets by the Spirit. Uh, what is this mystery? It's that the Gentiles will get to be insiders with the Jews. And, and maybe that's not the right way to say it. It's that both Gentiles and Jews will become a new humanity. So this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. Need we say more about that power? <laughs> Verse 8, to me, though I am very, I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Hold that thought, unsearchable riches of Christ, because it's coming back in the prayer he's going to close with. And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. In other words, through the church, it's being made known to the fake rulers of the world. Remember Psalm 2, the rulers that are rebelling against God? Yeah, we made known to them that there is another king on a higher throne and these are his people. 
This, verse 11, was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. A purpose he had forever ago started and has finally come to fruition in Christ. In whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So, I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. For this reason, verse 14, and here's the prayer. So for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family, Jew and Gentile, in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Remember the unsearchable riches of Christ in verse 8? Here it is. How many times did Paul say that this is limitless? Not only is there this limitless power that he's praying to be strengthened within the inner being and the spirit of our inner being, but he says that you may have strength to comprehend. This is blessing beyond belief. You may have strength to comprehend, just like before when he first started the prayer, he said I, that, that you would have a spirit of wisdom and revelation and that the eyes of your heart would be open to see and to know this. Now he's, he's coming back to that you have strength to comprehend with all the saints together what is the breadth and length and height and depth. There's no limit. He doesn't put a limit on this. Just how inexhaustible and to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge that you may be filled with the fullness of God. The fullness doesn't end. This is the unsearchable riches of Christ. The length, the breadth, the height, the depth. It doesn't have measurement. Man, that we could indeed say amen to let us have strength to comprehend this, Lord, with all the saints. Because if we comprehend this power and this unsearchable riches and blessing beyond belief and just depth of Christ, if we comprehended even an ounce of this, how could we not be unified? How could we not be the big blessing bearers to the world? And then he closes the prayer with this great finale in verse 20. Now to him. See, he's finally closing the prayer. That last prayer didn't really seem to be closed, right? It seems like he started it, kind of broke off with a lot of teaching. Now he's finally closing the prayer off. So chapters 115 to 321 seems like one lengthy prayer. So now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. And thus concludes the greeting, thanksgiving, and narration of a typical Roman letter. The last two parts that remain, the main body, which is the main point of the letter, and which, by the way, would usually take only 10, 20, 30 seconds to get to in reading, and this letter is taking a lot longer than that. <laughs> and then the fifth and final part's the closing, which is way back at the very last few chapters, chapters 621 through 24. 
So we finally get to the main body of the letter in chapter four. This is the main purpose for writing. So we're going to hear his thesis, his one call, the one desire, the one thing he wants his churches to do is going to be in chapter four. Everything was set up up to this point. The great narration, the narrative, the story of what has brought Paul and his readers up to this point in the letter is that Christ was raised and seated at the throne of God. And now he has given us from that throne grace to raise and seat us with him. So therefore, let's unify all things in heaven and on earth together, including humans and God and humans to humans. Yep, that's the story leading up to here. So now in light of all that, let's talk about how you shall live. And so this is where Ephesians gets very practical. And it's going to use the word walk, specifically five times, which is another way of live this way. It's another way of saying that. So you should live this way. You should walk this way. All right, so chapter four, verse one. Notice how the whole letter turns right here. You, it's very evident when I tell you that we're now in the main body. You'll hear it and you'll be like, oh, obviously, this is it. This is the main body of the letter. Uh, and it's going to turn on this one word, worthy, which comes from a Greek word, axios, which means, um, we translate it worthy, but it means balance. And it, it turns into worthy. Balance turns into worthy because of the idea of if you're going to buy a pound of flour, let's say, well, on the ancient balancing scales, you put a pound of flour on one end, and then on the other end of the scale, you'd put a pound weight. And if they, if the scales became even, if they were in balance, if they had equilibrium, then you knew you had a pound of flour. It was legit. And so here we go. There's a weight on one end of the scale and it's everything we've been called to. It's everything we just read in chapters one through three. And it's, it's massive, right? Now walk worthy, which Paul's going to say, living worthy means living in balance of that. So that our lives, the way we walk and live will bring that scale to balance and equilibrium. Now, Paul knows that we aren't going to be perfect. He's not calling us to be perfect. That's impossible. But he's calling us to start shaping our lives and walking in a direction toward royalty. That we begin to practice what it's like to rule with Jesus now. So that's the idea, okay? We're looking that we are progressing in that way. Do not beat yourselves up if you sin and say, I'm unworthy. That's not the idea of the word here. Um, just keep... We're, what we're looking for is progress, right? Are we closer to Christ than we were last year? Yes, you're going to always take a step back, but are we taking two steps forward? And and so we need to be compassionate toward ourselves like God is compassionate toward us. Remember, he said, in him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. Like, it's grace, which, oh, and then it says, which he lavished upon us. So it's not like he has a shortage of grace and is like really stingy about it. He's just like, yeah, it's the un ending ever flowing fount so my people keep walking all right so chapter four verse one i therefore a prisoner for the lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called i therefore urge you to walk in balance with the calling to which you have been called i therefore want you to have a life that is in balance with that great royal position you've been seated with christ on the throne just live like the royalty you are 
Not like a spoiled, rotten prince or princess who gets everything they want. That's not a true king leader. No, no. Like the son and daughter of the king who gave his life for the world and is trying to unite all things in him to bless the world. That, that kind of walk-like royalty. So how do we do that? Verse 2. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. If, as 1.10 said, he's uniting all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth, and if, because of the power at work within us, which raised Christ and seated him at the throne and did the same to us, should also be unifying Jews and Gentiles, or outsiders and insiders, all humans together, if that is the case because of the risen and ascended ruling and reigning Christ then we too should be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. The primary way we can walk in balance with our calling is that we are peacemakers, that we are walking in unity with our brothers and sisters. And that's what you're going to hear him say from this point. Um, Verse four, there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope. That belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. You just heard the word one seven times. Because we're a new humanity now, united in Christ. It's a new creation. There's a new set of seven creation works now. But, verse 7, but grace was given to each one of us. Now, he already talked about grace in chapter 2, right? We were dead, we were brought alive, we were seated with him. This is all the work of grace. Well, our king who sits on the throne is continually giving us grace. So, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, gift is the same word as grace. It's In Greek, it's charis or charis. Um, that's what grace means. It means gift. We don't often translate a gift because that kind of, when you say grace, you understand that it's God's gift. So gift can just be cheapened to like Christmas presents. But when you use the word grace, you're specifying God's gift to us. Now, even more specific in Ephesians, grace is the king's gift to us. It's the one who sits on the throne and has the earth inherited who's giving grace to us. He's giving us gifts. So this is very different, by the way, than most kings, as we're actually we're about to read. I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but um, kings would ascend a throne and see who is loyal to them by who gives them gifts. This king is proving his loyalty to us by giving us gifts. See, a very different kind of kingship here. So that's what he's going to go into. So verse 7, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, now he's citing Psalm chapter 68. When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. Now in Psalm 68, it begins with Yahweh as a, as a warrior who takes down his enemies. And so he's then, he's claiming captives, he's claiming um, his, his, his loot, right? He, he's won the victory, so he's got these treasures. And then he moves from Mount, Zion, from Mount Sinai to Mount Zion, into Jerusalem, into the temple. And so it's his ascension, because the Jews saw the temple as the throne of God on earth. And that's why you couldn't go into the Holy of Holies, it was the throne room. That's why the Ark of the Covenant was in the Psalms often called God's 
footstool. Kings sat on a throne and had a footstool. The Ark of the Covenant was this king's footstool. So in Jerusalem, he was the king and ruler there, and Israel's king was supposed to be a representation of that, but he was never faithful, and that's why Israel fell into exile. But so he was supposed to be the king there in the temple. And so Psalm 68 is a psalm about Yahweh being victorious and having loot, and he ascends his throne in Jerusalem, and then he gives the gifts to men. That's the part that Paul's citing. So Paul sees Christ now doing the same thing, that Christ has won a decisive victory through his blood on the cross. He's uniting all things in heaven and on earth together. He's reversing what Satan put into motion through division and in this sin-fractured world. He's reversing that. He's fixing that. He has been victorious and now seated on his throne where a winning king goes, a winning king sits on the throne. He's now giving the loot to his people. And we call that Grace. Wow, that's crazy cool. That puts a really unique look on the word grace, doesn't it? So when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now Paul comments in verse 9, In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. So um, it's probably talking about Christ coming to earth and then going up back to the throne. Um, some people talk about the descending is going into Hades or hell and releasing the dead there that um, were righteous. And look, there's a lot of like theories on that stuff. I, I frankly, I don't find them very interesting. It's not that I don't think they happened or didn't happen. I just... I just haven't devoted a lot of like thinking or study into that area. Um, I just want to, I just, sim- I'm just taking this simply. It would seem that the incarnation, the coming of Christ to earth was a big deal in scripture. And that's what Paul's alluding to, not the minor deal of um, raiding Hades. Although um, as Dr. Denny, um, I know he does a very good job of describing, he's very passionate actually about this theme. He would probably beg to defer with me. So um, maybe one day we can have him talk about that. Um, but for now, we'll just leave it at that, that um, Paul's just talking about, the gospel, the coming of Christ, and the ascension of Christ. Um, and, and the purpose was so that he might fill all things. And then in verse 11, and because he's ascended, he's given us gifts, right? So verse 11, here are the gifts. And he gave the uh, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers, to equip the saints, see you and me, Christians, for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So that the people of God begin to look like the Son of God. That's the point. He's giving us grace that we can grow up into mature manhood. So he's made us into a new humanity. Now we have to grow that new humanity up. So the new humanity is a unified humanity. Now they have to grow up to look like Christ. That's the idea. God is all about our progress in growing up and maturing. And we have a lot of that to do. Um, so that we grow up. Um, so that, verse 14, we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, 
makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And so that's why, my friends, it's important that we use the grace we've given to do works. We're not saved by the works. We're saved by the grace. But the grace is also giving us the power, the gifting, to do things for the king. So that we can continue to build unity. So that we can continue to bless the world. So that his people can grow up. That is our role. So when each part's doing its part, then we have balance and we have unity. So now Paul, uh, that was his part, so walk in unity. So now he's going to tell us to walk in your new self in 4 verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Now, he talked about Gentiles before, Gentiles and Jews becoming a new humanity. Here, the Gentiles are referring to um, those who are not walking in Christ. It's just the typical pagan in the Roman world. That's that's how you're supposed to read that. So, that you must no longer walk as the pagans do, in the futility of their minds. There's something about the mind. Now, um, I, I would consider the mind as being part of the immaterial part of ourselves. Um, the part, you know, where we have a lot of thoughts. And sometimes, um, it, sometimes it seems that heart and mind and soul are synonymous. These are very hard terms to define. But here, Paul's going to start to talk about consciousness. Um, that look, there's a, there's a certain outlook to life. There's a certain consciousness that the, the pagan has that's futile. It leads to nowhere. And, and as we alluded to earlier, I would say that that's the ego driving the life. We'll get into this. So, verse 18, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to do every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. I love, again, Paul's sarcasm there. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him. <laughs> He's like, uh, yeah, I was with you guys for a few years teaching, so of course you have heard about Christ and were taught very well about Christ. So Paul's like, uh, don't let me down here. <laughs> Show me that you were listening. Um, yeah, so don't, don't live like the heathens. Now, um, he, he talks about the difference. Put off the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And earlier he said that they are practicing every kind of impurity, uh, giving themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. That's the old self. That's, and that's what I would say in our American lingo, uh, the ego would be a pretty close similarity. That's the self that wants to promote the self and that wants to pull all things toward the self. The ego is like an immense black hole and it's using your body and your soul to grab the world around you to fill its unending emptiness. But when we are raised with Christ and seated with him, the Holy Spirit takes place of that so that we're no longer just a hungry body and soul being driven by the ego to eat everything. We are now a fulfilled body and soul filled with the Holy Spirit to now work the other way, not a black hole absorbing, but now an ever flowing fountain, blessings beyond the belief pouring out from us because we have an limitless 
unsearchable riches. We have this height, depth, and breadth. We have the fullness of God filled in us, and that's flowing outward. It has flown from God to us. We receive the spirit. So we are changed, right? In the spirit of our minds. Now our consciousness says life is not scarcity. Grab what you can get. Life is about grace and generosity. It's about abundance because God is an abundant God. And we can continue to flow and to give. It's a very, very, very different place to sit in the world. When you can live filled rather than empty. So put on the new self, which belongs um, uh, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Remember how in uh, Genesis 1, we were made in the image of God after the likeness of God to rule over creation. Well, here, your your new self is created in the likeness of God. It's, it's, it's that part of you which was made originally in his image to rule over creation. So put on that self. And see, that self is not a hungry, devouring ego driving everything. It was God himself, the spirit. That's what made us the image of God. And so now the new self is restored to that. We are a new creation, able to live in such a way to enact a new creation in the world around us. We have such a good life we're called to. And so now some examples, perhaps, of what this new self looks like in verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. And, okay, so some of these commands may be a little bit challenging at times, but see, that's kings should be strong. You don't just wake up able to rule the kingdom of God. Like, we grow into this role with Christ through the practicing of our faith by trusting and following his commands by learning his morals and putting on his character by putting on his mind by being renewed in our mind to put on the new self see this is work it it takes some effort to live a different way so yeah first of all start telling the truth stop lying lying so easy and you know the old self lies all the time it may not lie to hurt people but it often lies about who you are Because you want people to see you as more significant than you are. The old self and the ego feel so insignificant because we, we, in a sense, in our death, in our deadness and separation from God, we know that we were meant for royalty, but we know that we are very far from it. We're just slaves and we feel the insignificance and we are driven by need for significance. So we lie. We stretch the truth about what we've accomplished, about who we are. We put fancy titles. We strive and work hard and sacrifice our kids for our career because we need to be somebody. Um, yeah, not the new self. The new self is restored to its royalty. And so therefore you can put away falsehood and let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor for we are members of one another. 26, be angry and do not sin. Anger is not a sin, by the way. Uh, anger kind of is a negative connotation in our society. But really what anger is, is it's energy. Some of the angriest people are some of the best people at social justice. Because they hate how they see the world and they're mad at it. So they turn that, though, rather than beating up people or kids or kicking puppies because of their anger, they're channeling that anger to do good works in the world. 
That's the power that anger can have. So yeah, you know what? If you have anger for the way the world is, please don't get rid of that. We need that energy. Just don't sin with your anger, right? So be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. So we have emotions. The devil wants to seize those and use them negatively. Christ wants to use them restoratively. So new self, old self. Being used by Christ or the devil. Who's your king? What kingdom are you serving? Let's use what we have in that direction. 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. The point of working hard is not so that you can have a bigger house. It's so that you can have what you need to live and then have something to give. I know that's very challenging because the American mindset is you you deserve what you earned. But remember, we're saved by grace and not works. So that mentality is actually anti-gospel. So, yeah, that I I earn this, so I deserve it. That's not that does not align with the gospel. Um, I, I look, I'm an American too. I'm just like you. I challenge. I'm challenged by that too. I pr- I have way more than I need. I could definitely give more, right? And so this is why we need Ephesians, right? The reign of God is not about defeating nations to hoard their resources and riches. It's about giving his resources and riches to others, right? It's about saying, we will do fine with this. This is enough. See, the spirit knows how to say enough. The ego says never enough. Um, but yeah, rulers, sons and daughters of the king know how to say enough. And they know that their father has an abundance so they can give. Anyways, but that's Paul's uh, view of work is, you know, we work for the sake of others. Uh, 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. So learn the language of your king who does not cut people down with his words. In fact, his words created a world that he blessed so yeah consider what your words should be doing and do not grieve the holy spirit of god by whom you were sealed on the day of redemption let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice be kind to one another tender-hearted forgiving one another as god in christ forgave you so walk in unity uh, walk in your new self And now third, chapter five, walk in love. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. You know, I find interesting talking about our king is this verse, be imitators of God. And then he says, walk in love and he describes the love. A sacrificial love, a love that gives, a love that lays itself down to raise the other up. That's how you imitate God. But what we see in most other religions, historically present, and in societies, is godlike means to take and to seize and to possess and to have power. The almighty. But more true to the gospel is that God is the all-vulnerable. 
God is the one who lays himself down. God's the one who allows others to wound him so that his blood can heal, forgive, and save. And when Paul says be imitators of God, he's not telling us to be like the Roman gods, to be imitators of Pluto, to take over everything, be almighty. He's telling us to imitate the God who came and gave himself up as a fragrant offering, as a sacrifice. So when he says walk in love, that's what he means. That's powerful. The most God-like you can be is to walk in that kind of love. That's what it's like to be like God. Not working miracles. That's not what it's like to be like God. Yes, God does miracles. And yes, he chose some people to do miracles. But the true essence of walking like God, of imitating God, is walking in that selfless, sacrificial love that flows from abundance to a world of scarcity. Verse 3, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater. Whoa, you covet stuff? That means you're an idolater. Look at that has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So here's a way to walk so that you're not like a son or daughter of the king. That's what he was just saying. Um, everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, who is covetous, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Now, my in, uh, my professor pointed out, and so I, I don't really know, I just think it's worth thinking about. He pointed out that the text, and also in Galatians, I think First Corinthians, it says, like, these list of sins, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. He says, Notice the word inherit. It does not say enter. So without actually saying to his students what he believed, he just implied that is it possible that you may enter but not inherit? So in other words, what Paul's describing is this is what those who rule with Christ look like. Um, and then this is what those who don't. This is what they look like. Um, it, or is or is this the more traditional view? Is, is this a list giving us a list of those who go to heaven, those who go to hell? You know, um, I just think it's interesting. Um, I really don't know what to make of that. Verse six: Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness. But now you are light in the Lord. So, fourth walk, walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper. And arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So hey, if the power of God is at work in you and he's raised you up, then you are in the light, and your life should be um, pushing back the darkness. So this is another allusion to the creation. Um, as remember, uh, in the beginning, God created the, the heavens and the earth, and now the earth was without form, and it was void, and darkness covered the surface of the deep. Then the Spirit of God is hovering over that, and then the first thing God says is, let there be light, and there was light, and the light pushed back that 
suffocating darkness that the Bible opens with. That darkness was an oppressive. Nothing could live in that. So the first thing God does in creation is he addresses the darkness by speaking light. Now, he does not eradicate the darkness. Notice that. Because then Genesis goes on to say, he called the darkness night and the light he called day. What he did was he gave them boundaries so that the light, the, the darkness would never be overcome but was put in check by the light. And that's, in a sense, what we are to do. The church is to be a light putting darkness in check. We're not going to eliminate it. We never will. But we need to just be who we are because that's being the salt of the earth, the light of the world, the city on a hill. It's keeping the darkness in check until the king comes to claim his inheritance. Verse 15. Here is the fourth, no, fifth walk. Are we at uh, walk in unity, chapter 4, verse 1? Walk in the new self, walk in love, walk in light. Yes, so now we're on the fifth one. Walk wise, verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So the fool doesn't understand the will of the Lord. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Christ is a king, so don't be rivals with each other for who submits to who. Just submit to each other in reverence for Christ, your king. Like, when you think about it, when we're fighting, jockeying for position and not getting along, we're we're really disdaining the kingship of Christ. Um, but, so, walk-wise... Um, and when the illustration he uses here is don't get drunk with wine because that's not good, uh, but be filled with the spirit. And, and here we get a sense of what wisdom looks like. Wisdom is knowing how to rule God's creation. You read the Proverbs, that's the sense you get. It's like the, the Proverbs describe wisdom as a successful person. And the successful person is a person who understands how God's creation works. He understands the vibes of the universe. So he dances, he sings to that melody, Right. That's why singing and making hymns and psalms, spiritual songs to one another, singing, making melody to the Lord in your heart, giving thanks. Like here, there's a rhythm in the universe. The wise follows the rhythm and you never get off. And by the way, sin means to miss the mark. It means to be off the mark. So to be out of rhythm, to be out of tune is to be off. You're off the music. You're off the beat. You're off the dance. That's what sin is. It's to be off. Drunkenness is off. That's not the way of the universe because the universe was created with us as the image bearers of Christ meant to rule over it with him. So when the creation rules over you, which is what drunkenness is. It's the result of you enslaving yourself to a created drink. That is an, an antithesis to the kingdom of Christ, is when the creation rules over us. That's also why it said, no one who's sexually immoral or impure can inherit the kingdom of God. Because sex is ruling that person. If you've been raised and seated with Christ, you now have the power working in you to reverse this trend. We are meant to have rulership over these things. And this is done through the help of the Holy Spirit. Be filled with the Holy Spirit, it says. 
He empowers us to now practice. We will not be perfect, but we are to begin to practice our authority over all things. So, in Christ, the drunk can no longer be ruled by his drink. He is now a son of the king, a daughter of the king, and they can rule it. They can control. Through his grace, of course, through the spirit filling them. Sexually immoral and pure, same thing. Sex is no longer the king. We are ruling with Christ over this. And you go down a list of sins. This is why works are important. This is why we're called to a character, to morality, to virtue, to ethics. Because they teach us and train us. They build us up. They give us strength. They give us the power to begin ruling with Christ. And the longer we walk in that direction, the stronger we become. And then we are people Heaven will be what it is because the people there will have gone through a life that has learned how to rule over a creation that will never get out of control again. That's why certain people can't be there because they will let the creation spin out of control into chaos. That's what we're living in. We're living in a creation that's out of control that rules us and we have a very small group of people who have been raised and are seated with Christ and are trying to reverse this. The church should be a place where creation is not spinning out of control, but where we are practicing to the best of our ability to bring some control. Not the oppressive kind of control. We're in, we're in control of everything. Like, wait, no, no, we, of course there's faith and we're letting go of things, but the point is that we ourselves are not controlled by creation or people or things. We are learning to walk in this liberty, in this uh, union with Christ, in this where everything is now servants to us. All things have been given to us. As Paul said, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. You can see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. So walk wise, filled with the Spirit, to know how the universe works and to live not ruled by it, but in authority with Christ over it. Oh, that's good stuff. The stuff excites me. Verse 22. He now addresses domestic lifestyle, which some of it will sound strange to us, but this one's familiar. 522. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. So, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands. Like So, the, the image here is that the husband is like Christ and the wife is like the church. Now, wives submit to your husbands. Of course, society goes ballistic over this. Like, ah, women need rights. And like, okay, pause for one second. Yes, women need rights. Okay, I look, men and women, God created us equally. Okay, you know, it's 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 time that we don't play favorites with men. Um, so all that said, I don't. I'm not saying the feminist movement's doing everything properly, or are they about the right things? I'm not. Don't don't label me there. I'm just saying, like, look. When equality is great, but let's not just shift the scales to now women are in charge. Like that's, that's just an overreaction. Okay. Let's just see, like God created male and female in the image of God. He created them. That's what Genesis says. The image of God, it was split into two. Uh, his, his nature was given a masculinity and a femininity it, it, together. That is the image of God. In humanity, we see it split. So in the same way, by the way, that Jews and Gentiles are supposed to be coming together in unity, men and women, 
or to be coming together in unity. And marriage is the image in which that happens, coming together in unity. And so wives submitting their husbands is not about who is the Lord and King and you need to do what I say, because that's not how Christ is. Christ laid down his life for us. So if anything, this is a call for men to put women above themselves. Yeah, that's crazy. So, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So, trust, right? You can't have a relationship without trust. As the church submits in faith, we're to submit the the wife says submit to the husband in in faith in trust it's a relationship but now of course that means the husband is supposed to be a grace giver not women give me gifts nope 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 the husband's the grace giver of course in this um era that Paul's writing this was revolutionary um well yeah, it was revolutionary that um, the husband would treat the wife like this at all, because uh, you would be considered losing your masculinity if you were giving your wife any kind of equality to yourself. Uh, that's how the Romans saw it. But it's also, he's saying this in a familiar way, calling the wives to demonstrate faith, uh, submission to the husband, because, so, because that's um, how Romans did it. The wife was expected to be faithful sexually. But the husband had no obligation to be. The husband could sleep with uh, with servants, with other people, go to brothels. Like that was considered, that wasn't considered shameful for men to do. But if a woman was to do that, that was shameful. Um, so, the, so what Paul's doing is he's meeting society at one level where they are at. Like, yeah, wives be faithful, submit to your husband. But he's then taking it, as God so often does, to a whole nother level and pushing against culture and challenging it, saying, culture is not quite the kingdom of God. And so now we need to take it further than husbands. You need to serve your wife. So he's going to say that next. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. What a beautiful picture. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for... No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body. So in Roman society, if you're a man, you know, you're, you're going to keep your wife in subjection to you. Paul's saying, no, no, if you actually love yourself, you're going to take care of your wife. So the Roman way was not quite the right way. And Paul's showing the kingdom way. Uh, 31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother. He's quoting now Genesis 2, by the way, at the end, when when God creates Eve and presents him to Adam. Uh, he's quoting that part. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So why is he quoting from Genesis? Because remember, in this whole book, like there's a new creation going on. We're a new humanity, so we got to live differently. There's a new king in charge. we got to live differently than society. 
32, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Chapter 6, verse 1, children and parents. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, for this is the first commandment with the promise, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. So there's a direct quote from the Ten Commandments, honor your father and mother. And then there's tied with it, how Israel, if they would honor their father and mother, they would live long in the land. Here, uh, yeah, he's using that whole inheritance imagery once again. So the church has an inheritance. Um, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So fathers and mothers, let's train our children how to live like sons and daughters of the king. Royalty does not mean we get what we want and do what we want. It means that we lay down our lives for the people we're leading. We do what it takes to give them what they need to help them grow. Um, So don't provoke your children to anger. Um, Always telling them they're not good enough. Um, Always trying to make them in your own image. That's always sad. You know, trying to make them into the person you weren't. That is a horrible way to parent. We cannot parent out of our scarcity, out of our old self, out of our ego. Because you will exacerbate, or what? what is it called? Um, provoke. I think the King James says exacerbate or something. Whatever. Uh, you, will, you will provoke your children. It's just that you can't, we can't do that. We have to parent in the new self, which says, you know, I'm royalty, I'm enough, and out of this overflow of worth and love, I'm going to lead my children into the same. We've got to be patient, you know, in the same way God's patient with our growth, we have to be patient with our children's growth. Um, and that's the hardest thing with teenagers, I've noticed. In uh, teaching teenagers at Lake Road Christian School, I've noticed um, one of the things that, they, that it seems teenagers and parents have a really hard time with is just Parents tend to overreact to everything their kids do. And that makes the kids scared to death to share with their parents what's going on in their life because they're scared of the overreaction. They're scared of the disappointment. And I I don't have teenagers yet, but I can imagine how hard it would be to be patient with their growth because, you know, teenagers, it's pivotal years and they start doing things like, oh my gosh, I can't believe they're doing this and you feel like you're losing control and you want to lose your mind and you, you just want to like try to manipulate what they're doing and like, 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 like discipline them into correct behavior and, um, and, and some parents who've had a past and see their children pick up on some of that, they really lose it because now they're terrified their kids are going to be like them. But somewhere we have to trust God and we have to be patient. We have to simply listen to our kids and say, I'm not surprised. <coughs> How dare we expect them never to make mistakes? We have to be gracious and understanding when they confess so that we don't lose relationship with our teenagers. We have to be people they feel safe coming to. Parents have to be the most supportive and trusting people that they know. And so I, I just I just see that um, that youth don't always feel that way toward their parents. They don't feel like they can share. They don't feel like their parents will understand. And that may not be the parents' fault. It may just be inherently a youth thing. Like, ah, my parents will freak out. But I, I suspect that they pick up patterns from the past. My parent reacted like that about this little thing. Now that I've done this, how are they going to act? We need to be careful that we never parent 
out of the old self, but always out of the son and daughter of the king self, the new self, renewed in the spirit of our minds. Um, yeah, I, I know. I know you, some of you have been through it. I'll be there one day. I know it's not easy. I, I'm seeing that. I'm learning a lot as I teach youth. Um, I just can only hope, you know, that God's showing me enough that I can do my best. And, and of course, sometimes I think we fear it reflects upon us as parents when our kids become what they become. But we have to remember they have free will. And you may be the best parent on earth, and that is not going to guarantee that your children will walk the way you want them to walk. But one thing I'm convinced of is that we need to become good listeners of youth because they just want to be heard. And sometimes they do what they do because no one's listening. Verse 5 of chapter 6, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. And that there was no partiality with him. Um, slavery was a real thing in the Roman Empire. In fact, up to half of the empire, the estimates are that um, up to half were slaves. Like, Rome conquered most of the civilized world, right? So what do you do with the conquered? Well, obviously many people died in war. The rest became slaves. And you bring them to the markets and you sell them to the wealthy. The wealthy would buy them. And slaves were viewed as property. So a master could do whatever he wanted with his slave. So the husbands, the men of the house, sometimes would sleep with the female slaves, and they had to subject to that. They had to do what their master wanted. Um, some slaves could be crucified simply because they disobeyed their master. In fact, crucifixion was so horrendous and so frequently done to slaves that a Roman citizen, which meant a free person who was not a slave, um, would never be crucified. Which is what makes the crucifixion of Jesus that much more humiliating and shocking. Paul said that the gospel is an offense, 1 Corinthians 1, that it's an offense, it's foolishness to the wise. That's why we go around flaunting a crucified criminal who bore nothing higher than the status of a slave treated like the property of Rome. My goodness. And yet somehow that was exalted to the throne. Yeah, that's the gospel. The gospel is shocking. It's surprising. It's scandal. Um, but okay, so, but Paul's saying this because masters and slaves, like, slaves obey your masters. Masters treat your slaves well, though. Now, so, and Paul here, so, you know, a master may make a slave do something they don't think is right or not feel like they can do. Um, we're not sure how the church counseled slaves in those situations, you know? Paul here is just simply talking about the heart, you know? Like, hey, just serve your master like it's Christ. So he's not giving a specific um, situational uh, how do I do this or what. Those must have been sticky. And I think Paul wouldn't dare say here because uh, probably each situation warranted its own response. 
You know, sometimes theology is what we apply to a situation. It's not handed to us on a silver platter. This is how you do everything in life. Some things we have to talk through and wrestle through. Not every situation is just like the situation we handled previously. <clears throat> and I think that's one of the, going back to youth, you know, it's one of the things that they have a hard time with is when we kind of just universalize all morality, like all rules, like this is how you have to, like everything has to be done like this. And they realize that as it's in your teen years, you begin to realize the world is not as simple as you were told as growing up. Like it's much more complex as they have good questions and we have to meet the complexity of the world with their questions. Like, yeah, you know what? This situation, let's counsel you this way. And that situation, let's counsel you that way. And you're not Bob. You know, Sarah's not Bob. So what we told Bob to do is not what maybe Sarah should do. They're different people. So anyways, I'm kind of springboarding here off of slaves and masters. So yeah, we see uh, clearly masters need to treat their slaves. You know, you need to be a Christian. Um, but yeah, the slave, that would have been hard. But notice also, by the way, what Paul doesn't do. He does not denounce slavery. Isn't that interesting? It's a cultural norm, and we don't know what Paul thought about it. Was he against it? Or was it just something that was part of society, so much part of the fabric of who they were, they didn't even think twice about the fact that slaves should be treated, that there shouldn't be slaves anymore. Um, in the church, Paul does say in Galatians 3, there's neither uh, Jew, Gentile, male or female, nor is there slave nor free. So in the church, they all hold the same status. And so it does seem that Paul understands that in God's kingdom and when he returns, that there isn't going to be a slave-mass relationship at all anymore. Um, it does seem that he sees that is the ultimate goal. But nowhere does he start to change the system, right? He's not using his letter to uh, lead a parade against slavery. Uh, the church had to be wise in these days, right? They were a minority and they were not always welcome and they were sometimes persecuted. They had to be wise. And there's some things they just had to say, you know what? This is how the world is. We just have to keep being light until it changes. And guess what? It only took almost 2000 years, but slavery finally went away. William Wilberforce. And then, um, the civil war, Abraham Lincoln in America, William Wilberforce was in England. I say it went away, but it actually hasn't. So on one hand, we, we did, we, we did grow out of slavery, but now there's a new slavery and it's human trafficking, which is another severe problem. Um, and, and Michael Beavers, whom you guys have heard on B-Sides before, and if you go to church, you've, you've heard him also, um, on stage. Um, he has a, he has a deep passion for eliminating slavery and uh, maybe we'll have to get him on an episode to talk about that and things that we can do in regards to that. Um, but yeah, so it, but it's interesting here that, you know, it's not a dress. It's just, look, this is how it is right now. This is how we'll live in the midst of it. Maybe one day it will go away. I just find that interesting. All right. The walks are over. The main body's coming to its close. Chapter six, verse 10, he says, finally, I've taught this passage on B-side before, um, the whole armor God. I mentioned it quite a bit on the Sunday message, so I don't think I'm going to say a whole lot here. I'm not, definitely not going to be exhaustive about it. So, um, if you want more, you got to hear the others, but, um, let's go through it. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. So look, in light of all of this, we've got to do this in Christ. 
Be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, Jew, Gentile, wives, husbands, slaves, masters, children, parents, uh, heathens, Christians. <laughs> like, listen, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Those are not the enemies. But we do wrestle against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Those phrases are hauntingly familiar to how Paul started the letter, aren't they? To those things over which his throne resides over. That's what we're wrestling against, is rival powers, rival kingdoms that are trying to use us for their ends. We just often take it all out upon our brothers and sisters and friends and family. So all the more reason, verse 13, Therefore take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. So we need the armor because there's a real war. If we, okay, we are living in a world ruled by the prince of darkness, right? Satan. Serving, so we're living in enemy territory while serving the king who has laid claim to this earth as his inheritance. He just hasn't come to possess it yet. So the enemy who's defeated is still here. He'll be kicked out one day. But we, see this puts our position in a precarious place, doesn't it? We live in en- behind enemy lines under the allegiance of a different king. That's risky, isn't it? We need the whole armor of God, and we need to stand together. Which, by the way, is one of the main points of this passage. Yeah, standing. I've covered that in other places. But standing in unity. The Roman army was invincible if they marched in their ranks. Um, it was when you picked them off individually, they're totally vulnerable. Their armor was made in such a way that they would stand as a shield wall. So let's go through the armor so I can explain that to you. So stand therefore, verse 14, having fastened on the belt of truth, the belt simply held up the skirt, so they uh, they just held things together, um, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. So they would have sandals in which they actually put cleats in, like some of the earliest cleats, like athletic cleats, the Roman soldiers would wear so that they could stand their ground. They would dig the cleats in, and so that when they built their shield wall standing side by side with one another, and the enemy pressed against it, their feet were firmly planted so that they would not be pushed backward as easily. And then they could actually propel with their cleats off the ground to move forward and to push against the enemy while the long spears would come out of the shield wall and take care of some of the enemy. Yeah, I, I don't want to get into too much gore for some of you, but this, and Paul says that on your feet, that's the gospel, pushing this thing forward. Um, in, in all circumstances, verse 16, take the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit with which, which is the sword of God. Okay, so you have the, the helmet, the breastplate, and a shield, and a belt, and then shoes on your feet. Um, you're not protected on the lower section at all. It's the upper section that's protected. Why? Because the shield stood from your feet up to about your eyes. It was a full body shield. And the shields had hooks in which you would unite the shields together with the person next to you so that it formed a wall that was not easily broken. 
And so now the shield is tall, covering the feet, which would obviously be planted, be pushing forward. And it went up. And so the only part that you needed protection on was really the shoulder, or the, the helmet, the head area, so that if the enemy tried to jump up over the wall and attack from on top, the helmet protected the head. See, the helmet was not a good thing in hand-to-hand combat. It would, um, make you a little heavier, your, your, your equilibrium would be off because you couldn't hear as well, and of course your sight was narrowed, right? If you were in hand-to-hand combat, you want that helmet off so that you have all your senses present. The helmet was for the sake of standing in a unified wall. The shield was for standing in a unified wall. The cleats were for moving that wall forward and not letting it lose ground. Um... Uh, the breastplate too, uh, if anything, you know, from the top down, like the breastplate was part of that. Um, and then the only weapon mentioned here is the sword. And in the Greek, it designates a short sword, 18 to 24 inches. That's a foot and a half to two feet at most. Actually, actually, it may even just be 12 inches, 18 inches. The point is though, this was not the sword that Romans used in attack. In fact, Romans really didn't prefer the sword. The sword hung at their side as a last ditch weapon. They preferred the spear. So the wall would move, uh, the wall would stand there, and the spears would be really long so you could get to the enemy before they even got to the wall. The spear you could throw. The spear was the weapon of choice. The sword was used only if the wall was broken into. If you ever got into hand-to-hand combat, the sword was there. And it was short because you wanted to be quick and to be able to move it rapidly. And so Paul's saying, like, look, that's the word of God for us. Keep it close and uh, be good with it and be able to move it rapidly. But see, the whole point of the warfare and the armor is so that we stand together. Unity is so important. And so the God who's using power to unite heaven and earth, God and humans, Jews and Gentiles, outsiders, insiders, husband, wife, slave and free, um, child and uh, parent, God who's using all of this to bring it all together. Right? That's the battle here is that we would stand in unity. And then verse 18, praying at all times in the spirit. So prayer will cover all of this. Prayer will unite us. Prayer will keep us in the new self and the spirit of our minds being renewed. Praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. And then, and then Paul closes the letter. So, we've gotten through the main body. We've done the greeting. We've done the thanksgiving, that long 202-word sentence in verses 3 through 14, chapter 1. We've gotten through the narration, which is a lengthy prayer, um, from 115 all the way through the end of chapter 3. And then in 4-1, we had the main body, which went all the way through 6 verse 20, which we just finished with. And now the fifth and final part of a letter, the closing. And it's pretty simple. So 621, so that you may also know how I am and what I am doing. Tychicus, remember he's the messenger of the letter writing team. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all 
who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. And that ends this impressive letter we call Ephesians. Well, if you've made it this far, you are a trooper. This is Pastor Brandon with Grace and Gratitude. Thank you for listening.